So we're going to jump into a new series, The King and His Kingdom. The King and He Has a Kingdom. The Bible has so many things to say about this. Where is the first time we see the word king in the Bible? Where's the first time those, that word is used? That's an important word, isn't it? King. The king, eternal, immortal, the only wise God. Where, where does that all start in the Bible? It starts in Genesis 14. You can turn there. But before we jump into Genesis 14, I want to show you, um, I want to show you a diagram so we understand a timeline here to help us understand what's going on in God's eternal kingdom. It's a little fuzzy, but you can read it right here. You see, from creation to Abraham, which is Genesis 1 to chapter 11, 2,000 years of world history, like a third-ish of it. 2,000 years of world history in just those first 11 chapters. And in chapter 12, everything's going to slow way down. The reason it's going to slow down, and we're going to have all this specific information about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about the faith of Abraham, about his relationship with God, which is going to foreshadow justification by Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ alone on the cross, right? It's going to slow down because... God, in his eternal universe, only spends a few verses talking about every, all his creation. He only The first 2,000 years is 11 chapters, but when it gets to Abraham, it slows way down because God wants us to focus and emphasize. Now, if we all drove 25, 30 hours at 70 miles an hour to the Grand Canyon, I'm not spending 15 minutes. We're going to see the Grand Canyon. We may even hike it a little bit. If you get left in the bottom, you get left at the bottom. But I want to see it. I didn't do all this work just to spend a little bit of time there. I want to have an emphasis and look at it. So that's what God's doing. In the eternal, infallible word of God, he's saying, slow down. We're going to talk about the king and his kingdom. All right, hopefully that helps a little bit. There's an emphasis. It's the same in the New Testament. If we read it, there are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. Four chapters cover the first 30 years of the life of Jesus. Just four chapters for the first 30 years. 85 chapters cover the last three years of his life, his ministry. 85 of the chapters are about the last three years of his life. And 27 of those 85 chapters are about the last eight days of his life. Jesus is saying, the God of the universe is saying, slow down. It's all about the cross, isn't he? He's giving us an emphasis there, even in the New Testament. So let's go to Genesis 14. We have to take a look at this. This is the first battle and war we find in the Bible. This is the first time the word king and kings are used in the Bible. And I have to set this up. In Genesis chapter 12, God has spoken to a man named Abram. He's saying, blessing, I will bless you. Come out from among them. I'm calling you to a new place, and your descendants are going to be as the sea, as the sand of the sea. I, I've called you, and I'm going to use you. Actually, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. We know that Jesus is going to come through the line of Abraham. Abraham's going to make the great faith proclamation. He'll be justified by his trust in Christ, in God alone. So in Genesis 14, we find the first battle because Abram left his family. He went to Cana to Canaan, but he didn't go alone. He took his wife, he took his servants, and he had a lot of possessions. 
He was in his 70s already, and he took his nephew Lot. He took his nephew Lot. The first battle we're going to see here is going to be because Lot was taken. So what happens is they, they get to the area, Lot's successful, Abraham's successful, living in cramped quarters always causes strife and, 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 and uh, conflict. So Lot comes to Abraham and says, look, our herdsmen are getting into or having all these issues. We need to spread out a little bit. Abraham says, okay, okay, take whatever land you want. It's yours. You go left, I'm going to go right. You go right, I'll go left, whatever you want. So Lot says, okay, I'm going to take this area over here. But it was farther beyond, and he gets right up next to the famous city, Sodom. And what happens is, unbeknownst to Lot, because he's right next to the wicked Sodomites, Sodom and all those kings have been subject to another king for 12 years, where they're sick of it. Taxes are too high, the Wi-Fi is horrible, they're sick of it. They throw off, or attempt to throw off in a coup to get free. It is an unsuccessful coup. And heads are going to roll if there's an unsuccessful coup, coup, right? So it's unsuccessful. So the king comes in and he just wipes them all out and he takes a bunch of captives, um, of whom are Lot. He's got Lot with him. So now you understand the backdrop. Now we can pick up in Genesis 14, 16 to 23. Now this is a long intro, longer than my normal. You know you watch those movies that the movie starts out and then it jumps to the middle and then it goes back to the beginning, and maybe it jumps another part and it comes back. So to understand this passage, we're going to have to, they're not going to read it in its entirety. I'm going to stop and read something else and then stop, and then we'll go back. So Genesis 14, 16. Here we go. You guys watch movies, so I know you can handle the back and forth. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he called him brother, it was his nephew, he armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and all the people. Okay, so we see Abram functioning as a military leader. This is the first battle we see in the Bible. It's just kind of out of nowhere. He shouldn't have won it. There's a conglomerate of kings. He's got 318 trained servants. I mean, that's like Cajuns in boats with shotguns. I mean, they're pretty good, but it's not a standing army. It's pretty good, How in the world and why in the world is he successful in this endeavor when all the kings couldn't even overthrow the the king that was over him? How in the world? We find the answer just a couple pages back in Genesis 12, 12, 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to be with you despite what's going on in the world, despite the kingdoms that rise and fall, big and small. I'm with you. And that trumps everything. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in 
You, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now we see why in the world he was able to do this. How in the world are 318 trained servants going to whip a king? It actually was three kings, a conglomerate. How in the world? Because God said, I'm going to bless you and I'm with you. I'm not with them. They don't call on my name. They don't know me. I'm with you. So now we understand how this battle is even possible. How the first battle and all the battles throughout history are God's, not man's. I haven't spoken for two weeks, first time since I started the church. It probably shows. I've been pent up for two. The first week was a great break. Oh, it was great. I, didn't have, I don't have that many breaks, breaks as a young church, as a church planner. So I had uh, two weeks, the week before last, and last Sunday I was off. Listen, by like Wednesday, I was like, okay, that's enough break. Come on, let's go. I'm, I've been in the Word. I'm just loving it. I'm soaking in it. So it probably tell. You can tell. It's not extra coffee. It's actually just two weeks break. All right, so now we understand the story a little better. So that was halfway in the movie. Let's go back. All right, verse 17. We're in Genesis 14, 17. He has miraculously delivered these people. Lot was with him, although he takes them all back. We'll get back into that later. So now he's coming into the king's valley. Here comes the king of Sodom, the one who was unable to, to defeat the greater king. He's coming in to meet this Abram because, boy, he's got a ringer. I tell you what, I wasn't able to do this for 12 years, but this guy can run the ball like I've never seen. I want him on my team. This guy, he's going to go first round pick. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomar. That was the king that, that they couldn't beat, that took Lot and all his captives. And the kings who were with him. So we got Abraham coming back supernaturally. All the kings of the world. The empires are really represented. Past, present, and future. We just kind of have a glimpse of the world system and the kings of this world. Abraham is walking into the valley. He's got all these people. He's got Lot. He's got the spoils. The kings have no idea how he did this. This is not even possible. And then it gets really strange. The kings are coming from this direction. Abraham, Abram's walking in. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Okay, we got to stop there. We're going to go back in the middle of the movie. Wait, who, what? Who is this mysterious Melchizedek? We got to find that answer because Scripture interprets Scripture. The answer is found in Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7, 1. I told you I was a long intro. I'm not lying. We'll speed up after we get through this so we understand the picture. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings. Oh, we're reading about, this is Genesis 14. And blessed him to whom Abram gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. 
I don't know how there are different views on who this person is. The Jews believe it's Seth. It makes no sense, of course, according to Hebrews. It's Jesus. Without beginning, without end, eternal, there's only one God, eternal. So here comes the world's kings. Abram's coming back with this this captive group, and he steps into the valley. On his left are all the kingdoms of the world, and all of a sudden, Melchizedek, king of Salem, steps in. Well, we got a little bit of a standoff here. Whoa, what's going on in this amazing picture? So let's go back to Genesis 14. We're going to finish the intro, and then we'll jump into our notes. Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, picture of communion, a picture of the cross. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he said, and he blessed him and said two things. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham, he's being blessed. He was blessed in Genesis 12, and blessed be the eternal God. And he gave him a tenth of all. Now the king of Salem said to Abram, Give me the possessions and take the goods for yourself. I want to bless you too. You have been great. You whooped the guys I couldn't whip. I want you to have all the stuff too. I want to bless you. But Abram said to the king of Salem, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours. You can't bless me, kings. I'm sorry. Least you should say, I have made Abram rich. All right. We got the picture. It's a big picture. I mean, we're, we're covering thousands of years of history with, between all of these things. You've got some notes there. Let's jump into this. It's going to get real clear as we jump into this. Let's learn some things about the kingdom and his king. The kingdom Excuse me, the king and his kingdom. So the first thing we see Abram doing in Genesis 14, 14, the very first thing is strange in this culture. Strange in this nomadic, eastern, not western culture. Strange in this might makes right culture. He's doing something quite strange, especially... Because of Lot's actions. Look at verse 14. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed 318 of his servants who were born in his own house and went in to pursue as far as Dan. Wait a minute. We have an older man pursuing his nephew because of his knuckle-headed nephew didn't listen to Abram and did some things he shouldn't have. Abram shouldn't have to be in this position. It's Lot's fault. Lot's not married yet. He doesn't have kids yet. He's just a young man. He liked the Wi-Fi that was in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was really good. So he wanted to be right next to that city. Abram's out there in the Terabith trees. So he and his men were so close to that city, right by that wickedness, they got swept up in it, got captured. But Abraham, Abram stops everything and says, hold on. I'm going to take all my men, people raised in my own house, Kids that I knew that are now grown, I'm going to put their life in danger. I'm going to go against overwhelming odds, servants who aren't trained, against 
trained killers. Because Lot came with me, and I am going there. He doesn't owe that to Lot. There's something brewing in Abram's heart and in his mind that doesn't come from this planet. It's brewing in him from Genesis 12 that God put in there, and I'll tell you what it is. It's grace. It's undeserved favor. Number one in your notes. Grace is always an action word in God's kingdom. I think of grace. I think of like an old lady. Don't you? Just, oh, so sweet. Oh, yes, grace. Oh, amazing grace. It just, it just all these. I love the word. It's obviously such an important biblical word. But you just don't think of it as arm, get your swords, it's time to go. That's not the first word that pops in your head when you think of grace, is it? Not mine. But in Abram's mind, it's undeserved favor and grace that bubbles up in him. And he says, arm yourselves. I know Lot doesn't deserve this. I know you're putting your own life in line, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to fight with you. He didn't command his servants. He fought with them. He was right with them if you read it. He said, and we're going to by grace go and see if we can set these people free. Grace is the action words of his kingdom. We live in grace. That means we live in action. In action, in action, in action. We need to see that so clearly. Proverbs twenty-two eleven says this. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips. That's action. The king will be his friend. A beautiful picture in the minor prophets before the long period of silence, before long, 400 years of silence before the cross. Well, those words are better to be important because you've got a lot of generations depending on them. 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. What's going to be said toward the end there that's going to sustain and hold those people into the birth of the Savior? It's found in Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. And look at this. And will subdue our iniquities. What? Go after our sins? To destroy the work of the enemy? Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful grace. Grace is always an action word and his kingdom, in his kingdom. Let's go back to Genesis 14. So not only does Abram step into grace, I'll tell you why, because remember he's encountered God. He's encountered God. And although the culture is different, all these worldly kings are different, Abraham has a, the heart of God beating in him because he's an encountered God. And he's learning how to, whoa, I'm going to walk in the grace of God with others. Verse 16. Genesis 14, 16. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women, and what? And the people. Hmm, okay, what people is that? What people were taken? 
the Sodomites. Abram was a wealthy man, and he had 318 servants. He could have rolled up in those kings and said, look, you can have it all. I'm just going to give you a ransom. Hey, take 10 of my servants. I just need Lot. I don't give a rip about the other ones. They're junk anyways. They're sinners anyways. They, can, they made their bed. They can lie in it. But not this man of grace. Oh, no. He's going to take all the time. Maybe more kings are coming. Maybe the Calvary's coming for those bad guys. Lot doesn't know that. I mean, Abram doesn't know that. He's going to be 10 times slower with women and people and goods. He's going to bring them all back. He's not responsible for those people. He's not responsible for them. Why in the world is he doing that? See, because the heart of God is beating in him. And he remembers when he met God in chapter 12 of Genesis. And he says, and I'll make you a blessing to all nations. The sodomites? The wicked people? What? No, bring them all back. Bring them all back. If you're going to represent me, you're going to have to live life differently. Number two on your notes. Responsibility is the established rule in his kingdom. It's established. It's set. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter what's going on. Responsibility above and beyond is the established rule in the kingdom of God, right? Amen? That's what it is. It's established. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as all the women and the people, even though I would have cut a deal. Yeah, that would have been a lot easier. We could do this a lot quicker, a lot easier. Just take him into captivity. I don't care. In fact, it'll help me because God said it's my land. He gave it to me. In fact, maybe God's using this to clear it all out. But I'm not God, and I won't lift my hand against another. Let me ask you a question. I had to ask myself this question this week. Who or what? Who or what are you currently taking responsibility for that is totally undeserving. Think about it. I'm going to give you just a minute to think about it and write it down and then fold that paper and stick it in your bag so no one sees it. Think about it. Who are you currently taking responsibility for that is totally undeserving? Or what are you taking responsibility for that is totally undeserving? Our father Abraham by faith, said, all right, I'll bring back those sodomites. You don't get much more undeserving than that, amen? All right. You got it written down? You wrote it really small, folded it up? Let's look at this picture from our Savior's perspective in Romans 15. Listen to what Paul wrote. Romans 15. 15.1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples, the weaknesses, the frailties of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. That's good. That culture sounds good. For even Christ, he's the example of all things, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on 
me. Taking responsibility. For whatever, for whatever things were written before. Are we reading Genesis 15, 14? Was that written way before? For whatever things were written before were written for what? Our learning. That we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Responsibility is the established rule in his kingdom. It won't change. That's the way we live our life because we just want to be like Jesus. All right, let's keep going here. Verse 19. We're in Genesis 14, verse 19. So all the kings are right there. They're in the king's valley. Abram's right here. Melchizedek has stepped in from eternity into the scene. Verse 19. What's the first thing out of Melchizedek's mouth? And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of of heaven and earth. Kings of the world, Abram, I've already told you this in Genesis 12, but I want to reiterate it to you again, you're mine. You are mine and I'm going to bless you. You have followed me by faith. You have left your city. You've left your family. You've come and done exactly what I told you to do. Blessed be Abram of the God most high. See, because he's talented, he's wealthy, he's smart too. If you read the military strategy Abram, it was smart. He divided his forces, so he looked bigger than he was. He came from multiple directions. He came at night. They often were in tents. He cut those tents, lines, those tents fell in. They probably, half of them killed each other. This guy, the hand of the Lord is upon Abram. Everyone sees it, and the kings want him, like I said. Man, I want this guy on our team. God says, hold on. He's already mine. I've already spoken for him. I've already proclaimed on him that he's mine in Genesis 12. This is way bigger than any kings can understand or comprehend. This is eternal. This is throughout time. He's mine. And blessed, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. I want to tell you about the king. You want to know why the king's so wonderful? You want to know why he's so great and he's worthy to be praised? You want to know why these kids are young up here, jumping up and down and worshiping God with their own heart? There's no cameras in here. This is not going to be on YouTube. This is not some big church with lights and smoke. Do you know why we worship with all our heart? Because the king has pronounced approval over us sinners. Blessed be Abram. World, be quiet. You have nothing. My faith is in him. The blood covers him. That's it. The king pronounces his approval over him. Blessed be Abram. And let me tell you who's blessing him. The possessor of heaven and earth. There is no higher authority. Christians, visitors, you need to understand. Number three on your notes. The king is not silent about his approval 
You walk in joy. You walk in confidence. You have love. You can go through difficulty because you know the king has pronounced something over you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and your confession of him. And this is what the king does for Abram. You notice Abram doesn't plead his own case. Abram doesn't proclaim who he is to anyone. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have the authority to. He doesn't have the rank to, even though he's just won it all. He looks really good. I mean, he could, he could build a platform right here. He could build a city of Abram right there. He says, I'm not doing this. He said, if the Lord wants to build up, he can. If the Lord wants to tear down, he can. He says, oh, that's my man, Abram. Let me pronounce who he is. So the king steps in and says, that's mine. The first time we see the king, eternal and mortal, standing in, in contrast to the earthly kings, first time we see Jesus, it's as a king. You know, we always think about, especially going toward the holidays, the baby born in the manger, but he is the eternal king. He's king eternal, and that's what First Timothy 117 says. I think I skipped that earlier. We need to look at that. 1 Timothy 117. Let me tell you why, why you need to look at it. This is a pastoral epistle. 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Been, uh, they're for everyone. And Titus are for everyone. But they're specifically for spiritual leaders. They're specifically for anyone who's going to stand on the stage, whether it's six foot or six inches. This one's six and a half inches, so I'm headed up. Let me tell you the way, look at this, the way 1 Timothy starts. Paul's talking about his salvation, and then he just turns a switch on. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is no one, Paul says, who has any business standing before anyone Saying anything about God, please understand, I'm not exalting myself. I'm just building this up to a point. Who doesn't understand the fundamental and absolute principle that he is God, that he is king eternally and forever and ever all, has always been and will only be. That is the litmus test for anyone talking about God in any way. That he's the king eternal, always and forever and has always been and can only be that. Amen. That's how you know if someone knows Jesus. The king is not silent about his approval. Life would be too bad, too hard. This wouldn't be necessary if the king were silent. The forces of darkness or this world or whatever your struggles you've been through. If the king had been silent. But he's not. He's not silent. He has proclaimed his approval on us. And everything else is small potatoes. No matter what the world is praising us or cursing us, none of it matters. Because the king has pronounced his approval. We have to see this in Hebrews chapter 2. And chapter 11, but first chapter 2. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Told you he's the king eternal. 
in bringing many sons to glory to make the captive of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies God and those who are sanctified being set apart are all of one. For which reason, what does that say there? He is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed. He's made a approval, a proclamation of those that come under the cross. And he's not ashamed. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, multiple witnesses. Here I am and the children whom God has given me. I'm reading down this for a reason. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear and death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Even if their whole life it was a mess, he's happy to approve of them through the cross. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to who? We're back to Abraham. We're right back to Abraham. And again, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about the different people of faith. 1113. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country for which they had come out of, they would have had, have, would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not what? He's not ashamed. Because he's pronounced approval. He is not ashamed to be called their God. For he, was, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 17. How does it start out? With all the examples of all the great men and women of faith. Who starts it out? Abraham. And it all starts with the king and his kingdom in Genesis 14. This week, uh, I have a group of pastors that I meet every week with, just a group of pastors. Most of them are retired. Most of them are uh, church planners or twice my age, great, loving men, pranksters, goofing off all the time. If you walk in, they're going to insult you as soon as you get in there. But it's a small group of pastors, and they love me and love hanging out with them. So Wednesday, I went to go hang out with them. Well, Nick, of course, uh, is planting a church. His twin brother, Chris, I know it's confusing to see both of them. Chris moved with me from Colorado to help plant this church. He was here over two years. Nick, his twin brother, is going to be planting a church next year in Colorado. All three of those guys are. I mean, working there, it takes a lot of people to do that. So. <laughs> so, Nick, I said, Nick, come with me. If you haven't been insulted yet, be insulted by Cajun. It's the best. So we get in there, and as soon as we walk in the door, I say, hey, listen, this is... This is Nick. He's new. He's going to be planting a church next year in Colorado where he's from. Well, it was fresh meat, blood in the water. 
Of course, Marshall Clotio, the most loving and pastoral of them all, is trying to like feed them and love on them. And you want some figs. Nick don't like figs. That's a southern thing. Figs, don't give Nick figs. So they're just messing with him, where you're from, and this and that, and has Satan appeared to you, and all those guys, you know, they're just messing with him. It's just goofing off. That's what I love about the group. It has, it's not it's some big spiritual thing. It's just wonderful. Well, at the end of it, <laughs> I don't mean it like that. <laughs> that sounds horrible. Let me rephrase. You just get to relax and be there and hang out. You have nothing to do. You have nothing to prove. You don't have to pray or preach or do anything. It's just great to just relax, be with these guys. So at the end of it, they're just goofing off the whole time and just, it's like old men in a coffee shop have nothing better to do except mess with this young kid. Well, then we get ready to leave and they say, hey, listen, we're going to pray for you. Boy, the, the switch went off in that place. They said, hey, come here, we're going to pray for you. Nick, I said, look, I'm not old enough to do this. Y'all, gonna, y'all pray for him. I'm telling you, these six men, we, we counted up, have over 130 years of ministry between them. One pastored for 39 years. Robert Wells pastored uh, Harvest Time Church in uh, Abbeville for 31 years. He's the one who led the prayer. And a switch went off. A switch of approval, a switch of power, a switch went off. And I thought, oh my. Nick actually is going to be encouraged after he leaves. <laughs> he's, he's not going to think, what's wrong with these old Cajuns? They loved him and prayed for him and prayed over his wife who wasn't even there. I mean, just poured it off, poured it out over him. Because before he left, there was a clear understanding that they approved of him. Before the living God, before prayers, laying on of hands and all of that. Even though they messed with him for like an hour straight. Nick knows that they were with him, that they were for him. And in fact, he gained some uh, prayer partners. Amen? Amen? We must be clear in our approval of what God says is righteous and good. We can disapprove when he says it's, it's wrong. And we must live in his approval. His approval is confidence, life, joy, and peace. And we're going to live in it. All right. All right, let's round third. A couple quick ones here. Let's go back to Genesis 14. We've got to finish this out. We honor the word here, if you didn't notice. It's about the most scriptures I've ever used. Whew, I've got to keep it straight. Back in Genesis 14. First, Melchizedek, God incarnate. Christ pre-incarnate. Excuse me, let me say that correctly. Steps forward and he says, blessed be Abram. And then he says, verse 20. He says, blessed be Abram, verse 20. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, you know who won this battle. You already know because you're getting ready to make a proclamation that this ain't me. I'm not, I, I'm not taking a sandal strap. I know who did this for me. He already told me who he was and what he would do in Genesis 12. But so that all the kings of the world know that everything and everyone must bow their knee and confess Christ as Lord. And if there's going to be a blessing, if there's going to be praise, if there's going to be anything, it's blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
Let me tell you about the kingdom. Number four on your notes. Praise is a command of the king. It's not a suggestion. He says, Abraham, you're blessed. Pronouncing who he is over him. And he says, I'm going to tell you about how the kingdom works here. Because I'm the king, eternal and mortal. And blessed be God who is most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the foreshadow of the delivering of salvation is really right here. And praise is a command of his kingdom. Christians, we are commanded to praise. It's not a suggestion. It's not encouraged. It's a commandment from the king. That's the way his kingdom functions. What did Chris read earlier from I, when Isaiah in chapter 6 steps into heaven and sees angelic beings beyond his comprehension. If his hair was not white and standing on end, it was after that. He steps into heaven and what does he see? Praise in such a way he cannot comprehend. They, the seraphim covered feet, covered faces and cried, holy, holy, holy. Praise uncomprehensible to the human mind because praise is the commandment of the kingdom. And we need to understand that and we have to live in it. It's not some optional thing we do when we feel like it. All right, one last thing here. One last thing. Worship team, you can come up and get ready. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Look, Abram, I want you on my team. We just whooped that guy who had allegiance over us, who, who was lording over us for 12 years. We whooped him. You come with us in those 318 special forces, apparently, and we are going to rule this kingdom. We're going to rule Canaan. We're going to have it all. He says, oh, no. No, no, no. I know what you want, King, king Sodom. And I think I know who's pulling the strings behind you, King Sodom. It's actually the God of this world. And he's pulling your strings. You may not even know it. And he's saying, give allegiance to me. It sounds very familiar if you go to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry when he's led by the Spirit to the desert. And Satan says, bow down and worship me. And you can have it all. Same thing. Lastly, on the notes, the king requires a confession of allegiance. Write it down, and then let's look at Abram. Look at what he does here. The kings of the world, past, present, and future, just look throughout all of time. This is a prototype. King Sodom says, oh, I'm going to make you. King Sodom says, come with us. Let's stand up. But Abram seems like he almost stops a mid-sentence. <laughs> oh, stop right there, King Sodom. Stop. And the king's with him. Stop. Verse 22. Can you put up verse 22 there? Genesis 14, 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. God most high the possessor of heaven and earth. You don't understand. 
I'm already a member of his kingdom. There's no dual citizenship. There's life or death. There's blessings and there's curses. You're dead in your sins and trespasses or you're alive in him. I've already raised my hand to him. He's come to me and he showed me that he's the king, eternal and mortal. And I put up my hand. I'm not in this world. I live in it, but I'm not of it. I am his and he's mine. I have swore allegiance to him. The king has demanded it. He requires it. Amen. He requires it. Let's look at our last scripture before we jump into some worship because the command is to praise. Romans 10, not where well, you guys are good. Romans 10, 8 and 10. Let's read it. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. If you what? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, that's some allegiance confession, isn't it? That's Abraham throughout time saying, I have raised my hand to the God most high. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Yes, that's the key and his kingdom. Oh, I love the king and his kingdom. We've got a few minutes left. There's a command of praise out there. There's the command of praise out there, and there's a requirement of allegiance. Amen. Come on, you and Jesus. You spend some time with him. You spend some time with him right now. You are nearer than him, than Abram was through the blood of Jesus. You have a better covenant. There's the command of praise, and there's the requirement of allegiance. Who do you raise your hand to? Come on, let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. Oh, 
said he's the Lord God of heaven and earth I have not lifted my hand and said that's it the world I don't care about it you can't have me I'm his if you're here and he's not your king he can be today if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart on the Lord Jesus just like he said before we leave with heads bowed and eyes closed is there anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior and has never given him their full allegiance anyone like that one last time here tell them one last time one last time you're getting ready to leave you're going to have your whole afternoon you got friends and football and all those things but first he's approved it of you through the blood of Jesus and the command of praise has come out. So we, oh, come to him and say, oh, yes, my allegiance is to him and I will praise. One more time. Come on, the command of praise has gone out. We will be obedient servants, obedient children. There's nothing like it. Don't tell them how great he nothing is. Nothing like it. Tell them how grateful you are. And he said blessings. And he said the blood. There's nothing like it. 